Check, check, one, two. Okay. Nice. I'm not strict about audio interruptions and stuff like dogs barking or whatever. It's all part of the charm, <laughs> as they say. Yeah, good. And I'm Mark Marin. The premise of the show is always to sort of uh, combine what I like best about the three dozen or so podcasts I, I listen to regularly about filmmaking, which is how personality is front and center in Mark Maron's podcast and how, mm-hmm. you know, I've used that show to really get to know and understand so many comedic performers, writers, and so forth. And at the same time, there's all these other shows that are historical or go into dives. But I found the best conversations tend to be when two people get together with a mutual third-party topic or film or artifact or something mm-hmm. they both have a lot to talk about, but it's not about each other, so nobody feels like they're in the spotlight. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. How's it going? Where, where, what neighborhood do you live in? CTC, man, Lower Nine. Cool. I, I was wondering because I, I just went through your reel and saw so many of your films are set in Algiers Point. Are we? Are we starting? Is this we recording? Well, let me. Okay, let let me let me uh, let me do a quick intro and then I'll ask you that question and we can just kick it off like nothing happens. <laughs> um, I might use all of this actually. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Welcome to Essential Nola Cinema, a podcast where a filmmaker. Uh, Shit. <laughs> Welcome to Essential Nola Cinema, a podcast where I interview a filmmaker from the New Orleans area about a New Orleans made movie of their choosing. Uh, today I am with Nicholas Manuel Pino. Um, is it Pino or Pino? Do you put it's a little... Pino? Pino, okay. There's no tilde. <laughs> and are you a Nick? Is that what your friends call you? Yeah, people call me Nick. Cool. Today he chose Easy Rider. The 1969 era-defining Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda, a vehicle, no pun intended. But he, he he's made several short films, many music videos, lots of commercials. He's uh, the hardest working man in New Orleans. It's a, very impressive as a filmmaker in a, in a city where film is kind of like a red-haired stepchild, kind of fourth-tier art form to see how prolific you've been. And you've got it looks like you've got a finger in almost every artistic pie, having a music side you uh, webisodes short films narrative short films uh all kinds of commercial work it's very impressive can i ask how old you are i'm 33 cool very you're off to a great start (laughs) and i like pies yeah well pies i mean hubigs r.i.p although i heard hubigs is coming back did you hear that i've been hearing that for a long time (laughs) yeah i live in the hubigs neighborhood i got to watch it burn down from a block away it was very sad the smell of the neighborhood has never been the same since. Mm-hmm. So the last big project I'm aware of is, is, is The Funeral Band, the short film that played at the New Orleans Film Festival mm-hmm. starring Tony Frederick and Derek Freeman and a whole bunch of other local actors, and musicians, and so forth. And I was out of town for that festival, so I missed it at the time. But when I caught up with it, I was damn impressed uh, with all levels of it, uh, especially the writing. Writing is, seems to be... It's like the redheaded stepchild of the redheaded stepchild art form in the city. And seeing something with just a really good script was super refreshing. And of course, it's really well directed too. 
You sounds like you came up through the camera department. Is that correct? Well, I started pretty much as a musician. I played music in this town for 12 years under, you know, with various bands, including like Kirk Joseph from the Dirty Dozen, his band and Derek's band. And then I had a band uh, called Jealous Monk for years. Um, So when music videos were starting to get like, you know, when video started to become a commodity again, I needed someone to direct my music videos. And so I paid a couple people to do them and was very not impressed and not happy with the results. So then I just, you know, I bought a used T4i, you know, back in the day and then just started shooting, you know, and then people saw the work and were like, oh, that's pretty good. You want to do one for us? And I was like, wait, I could like make money during the week doing something instead of just playing like late nights and being a vampire. So, you know, that's kind of how it all started for me mixing um, the love of music as well as film. I've always loved film now that it was, you know, democratized, you know, like where you could buy a camera that you could afford and make something nice like a DSLR. It just fell into my hands. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like uh, a super organic way of, of getting into it. Tell us about where you come from and um, how you arrived in New Orleans. I'm originally from uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, right outside Newark. I came to New Orleans in '02 to go to school at Loyola for uh, music industry studies. And the city just kind of welcomed me. You know, the city was really good to me, like as a musician, like just hanging out at the Maple Leaf, I, you know, started falling into sets with Johnny Vidakovich and George Porter and Ivan Neville and meeting all these other people and ended up playing a bunch of jazz fests. And, That's awesome. you know, like the rest is history. It's 20 years now I've been here, almost 18 years, almost half my life. What do you play? Was Jealous Monk the band you were with at Jazz Fest? Uh, no, I was with Kirk Joseph's band at Jazz Fest um, a bunch of times. And uh, no, I was uh, I was a rapper too. I produced music. I produced uh, music for different films. I did scored like a bunch of stuff for the Equalizer film down, that uh, shot down here. You know, I did a bunch of jazz sessions for them uh, through friends in LA. That's great. That's um, Anton Fuqua, right? Yeah. Yep. They just send you stuff that they need sound alikes for. You know, like they just like, okay, we can't use. Oh, I gotcha. <laughs> Yeah, Soundalikes is a hilarious thing. You know, we can't use Miles Davis. We need something, you know, almost blue instead of, you know, <laughs> kind of blue, you know, like, you know. A kind of, kind of blue, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. It's the interesting side of Hollywood South. You don't hear too much about the post-production side. Yeah, they're doing, over at S1A, they do that all the time. Misha. Yeah, I know he's produced records for friends of mine. Jay Weigel. Jay Weigel's a legend doing it. There's a lot of talent here, you know? It's just like, I love, as you saw in the funeral band, like music is very important to me. And we recorded all that music specifically for the film. We (laughs) snuck into Loyola studio. (laughs) (laughs) The the music in the funeral band is is perfect. There's a, a really fine line you have to walk between the quality of a studio thing, but the the looseness and liveness of a performance that's happening in front of the camera. Plus you have, you know, the whole question of the matching the acoustics and things. It's really difficult. I use music extensively throughout my films and laundry day has a live band performance that you see sort of play out in pieces because we're visiting this one moment in a bar multiple times 
over the course of the same day, but told through different people's perspectives. And so I had to try to figure out live recordings to do. So we had a tempo and we set an E for the singer to work around. And then we just laid in all kinds of live recordings to try to figure out how that would work. And I made a promise to myself that the next time I use a live band, I'm actually going to use a real band instead of actors in a band, which is... It's interesting trying to do something like that. Yeah, you did a great. So tell me about how Easy Writer came onto your radar. You know, where were you when you saw it? And do you remember your first impression? I came uh, across Easy Rider probably during my college years through a friend. We just, you know, the wild college years in New Orleans, you know, like you do a lot of fun things, you know, smoking weed, <laughs> dropping a little acid here and there. So Easy Rider seemed like something that he, I guess he thought I would like. And I really did like it. Even though some people, you know, some people don't get it, but I feel like it's more pertinent now than it was when I saw it then, now re-watching it the other day. Yeah, I, I agree, actually. It's um, it's a film that casts a very long shadow culturally, not just cinema history, but just in the broader culture of things. So many film and music cliches were originated. They came from that film when they were brand new ideas that no one had ever tried before, and then quickly became cliches. So Easy Rider was a film that I thought I knew before I even saw it. I thought, okay, I know what this is all about. And then when I finally sat down to watch it for the first time, which was, I'm ashamed to say, only a couple years ago, I caught up with it. uh, There was an extended re-release, extra features and interviews with Mm -hmm. everybody and all that. Blu-ray. It's like 50 years or something. Yeah, exactly. It's a 69 film, so it must have been 09. And uh, I was blown away. I was, I just like, couldn't believe how good it was and how fresh it felt like it it didn't feel like all of the kind of knockoff films that it inspired in the 70s um it it's laszlo kovacs photography is just unbelievable it really did shake up so many things like you know it was one of the first movies to use found music instead of a score besides i, I guess the graduates credited with the first one but I feel like Easy Rider, it's a time capsule of the time because of the music and because of doing that and because of taking a little bit of like the French New Wave motto of just kind of doing it and just going out and doing it. You know, yes, the, the, the cinematography is beautiful because it's imperfect. Mm. You know, that started the whole like Hollywood New Wave of the 70s, the director driven New Wave that gave birth to so many great films and directors. Yeah. The uh, making of Easy Rider is fascinating. There's so much to, like, on the internet right now, just old interviews with all of the principal people at various stages over their long careers, talking about it, cleaning up the record and contradicting themselves and so on and so on. I think part of the energy of the film is that the filmmakers took so many risks uh, making it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the cinematography on the motorcycles alone is like, those are really those actors riding those motorcycles with their hands over their heads, no, no hands on the handlebars. Mm-hmm. Eating chicken. Doing all of their own riding and driving. Yeah, it's just like crazy. I, was, I, I thought, oh my God, it's like nobody was minding the store. Like, it's the director on the motorcycle. <laughs> well, Dennis Hopper was. You know, it's, it's so funny. Yeah. And like Laszlo leaning out of a car, probably with like one guy to hold him in an 80-pound camera on his shoulder. Yeah. The reason this is considered a New Orleans film is the Mardi Gras sequence at the end, um, which only accounts for, you know, I don't know. The third act, I guess. Of the film. 20 minutes. When I looked it up, apparently that was the first stuff they shot. 
Yeah, because they wanted to get Mardi Gras in. Yeah, exactly. And the the story seems to be that a production company called BBS, which is Rafelson and Bert Schneider, Bert Schneider, yeah, the Monkees, yeah, or Monkees Money, the Monkees Money, exactly. Um, Hopper and and Peter Fonda, of course, are both like children of Hollywood. Hopper came up with James Dean, and he's in two of the three James Dean movies, and mm-hmm. he was kind of a child actor, and so was Peter Fonda, obviously the son of Henry Fonda, and they were just desperate to like shake off like anything old Hollywood they wanted nothing to do with. They had this like deep hunger to like redefine themselves as part of like the cultural moment and not as part of some old Hollywood legacy. And they went to Bert Schneider and they said, at some point they're describing the movie that they want to make to him. And he says, well, what's the budget? And they didn't really have a budget. And so uh, Peter Fonda says he, that he just named $350,000 off the top of his head because that's what Roger Corman had made wild angels for. Yeah, Miles Angels was the biker movie that he had just done, so he just thought that's two biker movies, same budget, no problem. Yeah, and Schneider was like, okay, but let's do a little test. He gave him forty grand and he sent him to Mardi Gras, and yeah. the idea yeah. was that they would come back with footage and then they would greenlight the rest of it if they liked what they saw. And that's where they got completely wasted on acid and all these kind of now famous making of behind the scenes lore of driving Peter Fonda to have a nervous breakdown in the cemetery by yeah, talking about his mother, the death of his mom, yeah, yeah, which is some harsh shit. But Dennis Hopper got a reputation for being a pretty harsh director over the years. Apparently they were all, the infighting was insane. Talk about like interesting lessons you can learn by shooting the end of the film first, which is basically a devolution into complete chaos. And using that as the beginning of a crew that's like learning how to work together and everything actually kind of dissolving into actual chaos, it becomes like Truffaut's quote about every film was a documentary about the making of itself. Mm-hmm. You end up with the chaos of the production on screen and then you tack it in at the end of the movie. So the movie opens with a crew that's like now a well-oiled machine who knows what they're doing and knows how it's all working and everyone's got their roles all sorted out. Um, and the beginning of the film is like, I think the strongest part, the first 60 minutes or so. And then when the whole thing just kind of goes off a cliff, <laughs> it's exactly perfect for what they were trying to do with the film anyway. So then it ended up being the, the process ended up supporting the product, you know, which is the kind of the dream scenario for a filmmaker. Art imitates a shoot is, is hard. That's hard to, to kind of come by because, you know, like I could imagine like, after the stories that I heard about that, I'm surprised they even made the rest of the movie. After the stuff that you know, I heard Dennis Hopper was was doing. No, it's true. Um, but it's I, I. It was hard, like because you know they're both writing, they're both kind of producing, they're both kind of directing. Yep. You know, like and both starring, which is crazy. Yeah, and both starring. So it's like, well, that's like a piece out of Roger Corman's book. You know, like B-movie king over there, you know, like everyone came up through Corman, you know, and, and he was just, this is like the first movie that was really respected that has been done in that style because it wasn't just like an invasion or attack of something, you know, it was just people, you <laughs> yeah. know, just, it was people on the search for freedom at the end of this yeah. huge era, you know, because this is the end of the whole free love days. Yeah, Absolutely. They filmed in 68 and shot in 69, and it was like the assassination of Robert Kennedy, 
Altamont and Martin Luther, Martin King. Luther King. Nixon gets reelected, or sorry, elected for the first time. The Manson murders. Crazy. This is a crazy time. The middle of like the Vietnam. Yeah, Vietnam is peaking. You've got this um, fascinating fallout. That what I find really interesting about the late sixties is how how the disillusionment with the flower power hippie kids thing was palpable for certain artists but not for others and a whole set of artists musicians and filmmakers who are still really into it and still making kind of this hippy dippy stuff and then you have a small subset a more kind of guerrilla independently minded subset who are like no this whole thing is like crashing to the ground in front of us yeah they they blew it yeah, exactly. And that's where Terry Southern came in. Terry Southern wrote those monologues that sort of break up the music montages. Depends on who you talk to. Well, of course it does. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis Hopper says that he didn't write anything. He didn't write one fucking word. Man. See, see Peter Fonda says that Southern wrote all the best stuff. <laughs> Just nice. That much, like, yeah, and Southern's not around to defend himself. But uh, the the story Peter Fonda tells is that Southern was, a, he'd made um, Dr. Strangelove for Stanley Kubrick in mm-hmm. was 62 or something. And so he was a huge novelist, you know, part of the counterculture, the Ken Kesey sort of post-beatnik uh, set of uh, American novelists. And he was a Southern of the satirist too, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he was making millions of dollars in Hollywood as a ghostwriter to try to add that, like, you know, youth movement, uh, authenticity to all these scripts without getting credit and stuff. And when Southern heard Fonda was making a movie, he called them up and said, what's this easy writer thing you're working on? And he told them and he said, I'd love to help you. And he said, Terry, your rate is bigger than our entire budget. Yeah. You know, and Terry said, no, I'll just do it for free. I don't care. Like, I just want to help you guys out. I want to do something that feels real and not, Mm -hmm. you know, peppering up. Cleopatra or whatever the hell he was doing. Yeah. As a ghostwriter. Make Cleopatra feel younger. We need we need her to get the youth. Can she be a hippie? Yeah. Put some flowers in her hair. Yeah. It's a fascinating one time only amalgam of creative talent coming together at the right historical moment. And it's kind of a curio because it's when I watched it in preparation for this conversation, I noticed there's a kind of back and forth structure where there there'll be a scene and there's Writing. These montages, writing montages sometimes, I mean, often in the first uh, 30 minutes, that are set to music. The Steppenwolf, uh, Born to be Wild thing. And I counted five of them in the first 30 minutes. Yeah. Which is crazy. So you've got one scene and then a uh, kind of a music montage and then one scene and then a music montage. Very little dialogue for the first line of dialogue happens eight minutes into the film. And there's probably only like a page's worth of dialogue for the first 20 minutes or so. Like the whole the whole business swapping the... Yeah, the Coke. With the, the guy in the Rolls Royce. Yeah, playing out with nothing but airplane noise, which was cool. Yeah. For like five minutes. I can imagine being in like the theater hearing that, how loud that must have been. Yeah. That was a, that's a bold choice. I love some of those angles there too. Shooting two two shots using the, the side mirror on the truck. You know, yeah. I wonder how much of that was Hopper and how much of that was just Kovacs, because it's hard to imagine. Did you ever see anything Hopper directed after Easy Rider? Um, the other day I tried watching what was it? The last, uh, the last movie, right? The last movie, yeah. And I didn't really get through it. What <laughs> else has he directed? That's the thing. I think by the time he died, he only had 
I want to say four or five titles to his credit. And they were, a lot of them were films like the last movie, which were kind of films that burned out at some point and that had to be cobbled together kind of post factum or that sat in cans for 20 years because he didn't have the wherewithal, the financing or what, whatever to finish them. He, he, he was a hell of an actor and clearly had a talent with directing. I mean, you think yeah. about Easy Rider's, what post-production on Easy Rider must have been like, the editing of that film is a miracle. I mean, the editing is so strong and the choice of music and the matching of, of sound to image, all that stuff is great. And obviously Hopper deserves all the credit for, for coming up with that. But there was something self-destructive about him that just, here we go, directing seven credits total, the last movie was technically released in 71, although apparently it wasn't completed until about a few years before his death. He has a film called Out of the Blue in 1980, Colors in 88. Do you remember Colors, the Sh- Sean Penn film? I always forget that's Hopper. I really like that film. Uh, Robert Duvall. Yeah, 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 yeah. He made a film in 1990 called Catch Fire that he then sued to have his name taken off of. Mm-hmm. So it was released under Alan Smithy. And The Hot Spot, the year after, and then a film called Chasers in 94, and then he was just done. <laughs> That's a lot of movies for a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. It's not, I mean, it's, I guess it's not bad. But you look at his acting credits, he's got like, like a thousand. Yeah, he was a great actor too, man. He, he, was, he was a wild man, like, you know, so as a director, it's like, you know, like opinions, you know, you can be the most opinionated motherfucker in the world if you're right. <laughs> right. And especially if you have a track record of being right. You know, and then carte blanche, go ahead, go do whatever you want. And then the next movie, he did whatever he wanted, and then he couldn't do what he wanted anymore. Yep. Yeah. They they gave him a blank check, and then they took the blank check back. Yeah. So t- tell me how Easy Rider, how did you choose it out of all those films I showed you on that list? Why'd you pick it? And uh, has it influenced your own work? Why did I pick it? What else did I look at at the list? I guess Streetcar Named Desire, which is, you know, Brando. You know, that's an amazing film. Um, It was a good list. What else did I pick on that list? I can't can't remember, but it was a a good list. I don't know why I picked Easy Rider. I guess it's just kind of stuck with me. I I love, like, the freewheeling wildness of it. I love the ending, even though the ending is... I forgot how sad the ending was. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's foreshadowed in the scene in the diner about halfway through when they after they picked up Nicholson yeah. and the cops are there and that table full of girls and the cops are talking about fucking with the guy and you can see their sort of gleaming thing and they're calling them homosexuals and stuff and yeah. she looks pretty yeah and and there's a sense that like if they hadn't left these guys would have it would have been a serious problem well they they killed George. They said, I bet you they're not going to make the parish line. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And and they didn't. There's a, There was a bunch of stuff in the, after Nicholson enters the movie where I was like, why the... F-? Nicholson was... He wasn't a, a star then. He was in the movie because he had written Head, the Monkees movie, for Bert Schneider. And he was known as a screenwriter and a, you know, kind of a pseudo-intellectual... But, he, you know, he was handsome, and mm-hmm. he had shown up in several Roger Corman films, including the original Little Shop of Horrors, where he plays the masochist who ends up in the sadistic dentist's office. That was his very first role in cinema. So Nicholson is hanging around Schneider's office, hears about and befriends 
fund and they wrote him in. And it's interesting mm. how the two characters take a back seat to him when he shows up. It's like Fonda and Hopper sort of instinctively knew, like, we've got a real star on our hands here, even though he was a nobody. Yeah, and they fought. They fought to have him not in it. And then they ate their words and said it was the best money that they spent. Yeah. <laughs> he steals the show. He really he really just steals the show. <laughs> he, and his dialogue is amazing. He's, it's so good. Because that's not what you're really expecting, you know? You're not expecting someone like an ACLU or what, what kind of lawyer was he? He was an ACLU. That's right. But he's also like a drunk. <laughs> he's in the drunk tank and like... Yeah. And he's got this accent that I, I don't know what the hell... Yeah. That that was the thing. I was trying to piece the trip together geographically. And when... I, I don't know exactly where they are, but I assume they're in Texas when they get pulled over for marching in a parade without a permit or whatever. Mm-hmm. And... Then Nicholson opens his mouth, and out's coming this, like, I don't know what southern accent that is, but it seems like it's, like, on the verge of Foghorn Leghorn. It's very, like, Carolina, Georgia, upper class, maybe Savannah kind of. Exactly. I feel like it was a Savannah or, you know, or Georgia, or maybe even, like, a Mississippi mm. type of person. But yeah, like you know, he's he's not what you expect to to meet in a, a small town jail. An ACLU lawyer, like, what are the chances? Yeah. But you know, like, and <laughs> it's just like just because they know him, he's the one. You know, he does deliver the best lines out of the whole movie. He delivers the whole damn theme of the movie. Yep. Talking about freedom and like they're just scared of what you represent. They don't want freedom. Yeah, they're afraid of it when they see it. They're afraid of it when they see it. You know, and I feel like that's kind of like. It's a reverse Western trail or, you know, like they're, they're, they're going back, you know, they're, they're, they made it to California, you know, and now they're coming all the way back. It's an acid Western, right? Like yeah. that's what it is. Like, you know, there's comparisons mm-hmm. when they're shoeing the horse and shoeing the motorcycle, you know, fixing that. Like, yeah, both in a barn, the names, Billy, the kid, Captain America, Wyatt, you know, after Wyatt Earp, you know, like electric horses. Yeah. Electric horses. Exactly. The freedom of it really just goes with the time that is also, I feel like, thematic in it, you know, because of everything ending and they're trying to make it to Mardi Gras on time. He throws away his watch. He does, you know, like Mm -hmm. they talk about time with the um, guy, the hitchhiker that they they pick up, Mm. you know, and they talk about time like this will be the right time to eat the acid, you know, it's like, and then he's talking about we blew it. He says, I'm hip to time, man. I'm hip to time, man. Yeah, whatever that means. Yeah, it's funny. It's it's like as if time is a sort of elemental force that he's somehow harnessed in his own imagination or something. <laughs> like some Doctor Strange level shit. Yeah, yeah. I love the whole theme of... The tagline is, you know, two men tried to find America. Yeah. And couldn't, I guess, is the punchline. There's been a very strong theme in the 21st century culturally about the sort of end of America, like the fall of democracy, the mm-hmm. um, the collapse of the American empire and so forth. And my personal history with New Orleans ties very strongly to that. This is the 14th city I've lived in. And wow, I grew up in southern Connecticut, New Haven, which is a, a city of about 150,000, big college town, obviously, but also like working class roots and Went to college in Boston, have lived all over New England, New York City, upstate New York, and the West Coast. 
plus visiting all these other cities all over the place. And um, the cities are kind of becoming homogenous to me. Like there's very few places left in America that don't feel like anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So when I came to New Orleans after Katrina in 2006, I was not intending to necessarily stay here. One of my oldest friends was living in the quarter and he had ridden out Katrina and, and invited me down to crash there. My mom had just passed away. And, uh, and I just sold my first feature film in Los Angeles. So I had no big projects on my plate and I came down here and I found the post-Katrina grieving was very much on the same spiritual level as my own sort of uh, lostness and, and mm -hmm. familial grieving. Yeah. Um, and so there was a, a sense that I, I felt like I was leaving America behind uh, by being here. And I still say to this day that the, the parts of New Orleans I like the least are the most American aspects. And I, I thought about selling bumper stickers that say, you know, keep America out of New Orleans or like USA, USA out of New Orleans, like like it's an invading yeah. you know, force, which I think in some ways it is. This, this is a city that's been occupied or owned by five different countries in its history. Mm -hmm. And there's something uniquely un-American about the place that really speaks to me. I was also, I should also mention I'm an immigrant. I was born in Brazil and nice. um, didn't become an American until I was six. So I, I sort of... My I family's from Chile. Oh, right. It's South Americans. <laughs> I knew I could trust you. <laughs> so, um... Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, like... To put a period on, on my whole end of America idea is that Easy Rider got there first. And I mean, they're... For a film created in 68 and released in 69... It's talking about the end of a culture and the loss of the ideals, you know, because ultimately I define America by its ideals, not its geography or particular population. You know, mm. this was supposed to be a place where people could live diverse and could be peaceful and it could be free from governmental tyranny and um, but also, you know, the tyranny of. I don't know, they're, they're all the different kinds of tyranny, I guess. And that it that, that there was a kind of utopian vision behind the creating of it. And, and of course, America dropped the ball out of the gate uh, pretty much as a, an ideal, but it's something to live up to. The idea is as long as we're working towards it, the ideal is alive. But then the, the, the death of America is about the death of the interest of in working towards that ideal. When people stop trying or when they corrupt the ideal to the point of like, no, we're working through this other ideal now and it's whatever, then that's just not America anymore. And so when they say we blew it, I feel like they're talking about Americans living up to the, what the concept of the country could have been. In 1969, I mean, that's a crazy subversive idea, especially to be putting into a youth culture film where the youth were so instrumental in changing so many policies in the post-war era going through the civil rights movement and into Vietnam, you would think they would have been high on this optimistic wave. You know, they would have been kind of high on their own supply in terms of power and their ability to change things. I mean, protesting was like practically a social event back then. And I think maybe it's the decadence how how a, a righteous movement for equal rights sort of got corrupted into a sort of style and a bunch of vague new age philosophy instead of 
you know, actual political action. And so maybe that's what Easy Rider was. That's who Billy is. Like, Billy is like, you know, the quintessential, you know, he, he sounds like a hippie, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. But he's all about capitalism. Yeah, it's true. Like, that's how he thinks. We're rich, man. We're rich. Yeah. Make- you know, that's, that's the other bad. We're rich, you know, like, but he still looks like a hippie, still sounds like a hippie, but he's been corrupted into just the whole capitalism aspect, which, you know, I think is what the opposite, you know, that Wyatt's talking about when he stops everywhere, you know, like to the farm, he's like, man, this is great. You know, you should be proud of this. And then at the commune, he's talking about like, no, you're going to make it, Mm. you know, you're going to make it, you know, like still optimistic about like living off the land and just, you know, being your own man. And, And like that, that is still the people clinging on to, it's interesting thinking about like it between like the commune and the old culture of the farmer, you know, because it's like he, the farmer married a Mexican lady, obviously. So maybe it was in Texas, you know, and they're over there trying to recapture like what they're doing, you know, at the, at the commune. Mm. And when he said we blew it, man, it's like, cause I feel like he's looking at Billy and being like, you know, like you're a capitalist. We did it for the money, you know, like, and you would think that it would be the other way around by the way that they look. Yeah. Peter Fonda with the nice glasses and then American yeah. gas tank and stuff. Maybe metaphorically or, or allegorically, they represent Fonda's the pure dream of America. And then Hopper is the ugly reality of America. Yeah, yeah. If you thought anyone would be a capitalist, it would be Peter Fonda in that, right? You know, he looks more like a capitalist than Billy the Kid does, but, you know, he's focused on getting to Mardi Gras so we can get laid and spend this money. And, like, that's also, like, but is that American, you know? He's got a business card for a hooker. (laughs) Yeah. Which I I thought was, like, hookers have business cards? Like, that's interesting. And then we spend his money... George's money on it and go to the hooker, you know, to the cat house. Right. Corner of Bourbon and Toulouse. (laughs) That's the end of it, man. You know, that's the end of the era, bro. Like the free love, they're not, it's not free love anymore. They're paying for the love. They're paying for the companionship. That's the end of the era right there, man. Yeah. They show up in New Orleans as tourists and they hit Mardi Gras like a bunch of tourists would. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I, I wondered if that, how much of that was deliberate or intentional because Mardi Gras is so misunderstood by people, non-New Orleans people, who don't realize it's a more of a season. To miss Mardi Gras, it's not like missing the 4th of July or something. It's There's a bunch of dialogue early in the movie where they're talking about, oh, we got to get there, man. Like Hopper's freaking out about how much time they have. And he's like, we'll be there in a few days. Don't, like, yeah. Chill out, bro. And, and I kept thinking, like, I don't know if he knows what Mardi Gras really is. Like, it seems very strange that he would be thinking like, oh, we got to get there on this one particular day or something when it's a month long (laughs) event. Yeah. That's what America is though. It's like their journey of to the unknown, but they're going to go there anyway. You know, it's like idealized version of it, but it's, you know, when you get there, you realize that it's not really the way it is. Did Wyatt have a good time there? No, (laughs) no, no, he did not. To say the least. Everything was wrong for him and everything was right for Billy. He just, you know, he just kind of ignored it, you know, and like, that's why he, I think, why it was kind of so pissed at it, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. Because the original ending was they were going to sail away on a boat in the Keys. No kidding. That was like the original ending. 
And Derry Southern was like, no, you can't do that. And Dennis Hopper was like, no fucking way. They got to have a good ending, you know? And then he, like, realized that it was the right ending, you know, the somber ending of the era being dead now, you know, as it gets covered up with the American flag, you know? Yeah, that final helicopter shot is unbelievable. I remember the first time I watched it, and when they run into the hillbillies uh, or whoever, you know, the guys with the guns in the truck, I thought, oh, Mm -hmm. oh boy, this is like the third set of hillbillies or, like, reactionary southerners they've run into. And I wonder about... They didn't spend any money the whole trip, if you if you think about it, you know, like, and they also didn't help anybody, you know, they saw those people starving, you know, like that one amazing shot that of just the circling of the room that was like a minute shot of like 40 people or something, which was like so awesome. Oh, yeah. All those faces. Yeah, all those faces. Amazing faces. They had all this money and they never helped. Mm, I'm thinking about that. It's the commune doesn't need money, hypothetically, because they're self-sufficient. And that's what Peter Fonda admires so much about them. Well, they're trying because, you know, the, the, the crop didn't come in last year. So now they're kind of like almost starving over there. That's true. And then Fonda tells them, like, you're going to be OK, man. You're going to you're going to get through it. Yeah, you're going to be OK, man. That's like the most American thing to do. <laughs> like you got a bunch of money to help these people out and you're like, no, man. Prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say that because it's a bit of a, it's part of the, the impotency of this new age hippie spiritual movement, like good vibes, man. It's all it takes. Positive thinking or whatever, you know. It's all it takes. And it's funny how quickly that got corrupted in the 70s into yeah. Scientology and Est and all these sort of religious cults for rich people peddling the same vaguely positive spiritualism. It's interesting to see the, the all the different lineages that Easy Rider kind of created and and reflected upon. I love the the motorcycle as horse thing because it ties back to what westerns meant to America, what the western movie meant to America's self image. Yeah. The western, you know, for the most of the century had been the dominant form of America telling fables about itself to itself. Mm-hmm. The big gilded mirror that America held up is culturally to, to to tell itself good things and to feel better. It's all positive reaffirmation. John Wayne cleaning up the West and yeah. manifest destiny and all that shit that we know is so toxic now. Taming everything. Yeah, taming everything. Right, seizing the land from the savages. Yes. I mean, the first thing I noticed about Easy Rider is the incredible, I mean, I guess you'd call it extras casting. But the the faces of the Mexicans in that opening scene, uh-huh. the the la- lack of teeth, the yeah. wonderful textures of their skin, the expressiveness of their eyes throughout the movie, like Hopper or or Kovacs or whoever was pointing the camera at obviously real people yeah. who happen to be in these environments, and so you end up with this really amazingly multicultural view of America over the course of the film. It's the best part of the film, I think. Well, he he loved the European films, you know? And who did that better than Fellini? Yeah. The people in Fellini's films, you know, those faces, you know? They were just, oh, I love, I love their face. And he'll be like, okay, this shot has nothing to do with the film. Let's just watch their face. And I feel like that kind of came from, from there. And yeah, like, you know, seeing the sun-worn wrinkles 
on like the the cowboys faces and stuff that's the texture of america you know like seeing them him married to a mexican lady with all these multicultural children running around mm-hmm. you know is, is the america that you don't really see you know and i'm sure you didn't see it then even as much you know well paradoxically like back in the 60s i'm sure there was far less representation of that but it was probably far more common because it was before the corporate takeover and the deregulation of our public lands and so forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of the homogenization of America. I was referring to earlier the sameness of, of places is because everyone's consuming the same media and watching the same thing. Everyone sleeps in a mud mask and buys on Amazon.com. And it's like yeah. just creating the same kind of people everywhere. You may get some accent flares or whatever, but you really don't have the diversity anymore uh, or, or at least in the urban sense, you know, where you go to a city and there'd be a completely different way of life. Now everyone's got the same way of life. Yeah, It's just very frustrating. And it's, I mean, I don't know. The question of how do you resist it, I just gave up and, and fled. And now I question it because the, the, the political moment of the time, we're recording this on June 11th, 2020, like revolutions in the air again. When I was talking to... Uh, Harry Shearer and and Glenn Petrie, who are both men in their 60s, they were talking about how the air feels like 67, 68, 69 now, culturally, which Uh is frankly exciting to me. To me, I think that's a great thing because I think we've been so complacent for so long as a culture. This should have happened 25 years ago, all of this. But um, we watched Friends instead. It's a teeter-totter, man, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it takes the movement of, like, back and forth till it really tips. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like water sloshing in a bucket, you know what mm. I'm saying? It's like, mm. and now now we're ready to tip the bucket again. We've been distracted, you know? Like, that's the whole thing. It's like, we're distracted with how easy things are for for some people now, so they don't want shit to change. Yeah. Nothing's wrong in their life. Why do they want to change? Why do they want to give up power? You know, like that's not going to happen. Like, you know, like you have to, you have to take it, you know, like. Exactly. They're, you have to take it because they're not going to give it up without a fight. Yeah. They're not going to give it up without a fight. Precisely. And that's what this movie's about, man. Yeah. Bingo. Exactly. Like they're failed. It's like, a, they just failed. <laughs> they failed to take it, man. They got distracted. Exactly. They got, they, they chased the easy money and the good times. Yeah. Let's talk about how the film affects your filmmaking as a creative person. You're talking very long lenses. You like long lenses. I mean, is Kovacs one of your cinematography heroes? Where does he stand in the in the pantheon for you? I guess I, I am too a fan of the European movies, you know? Antonioni, Fellini, Truffaut, Godard, all those. You know, Agnes, you know, just... I guess that's kind of like how I started filmmaking, you know, like just go do it. You know, now is the time. Just go do it. So I did it and I didn't know anything about it, you know, and it sucked and my shit was shaky and, you know, shit was out of focus, you know, (laughs) and then you keep doing it and doing it and doing it and you get better and you, you learn more and you, you know, take it on as a craft and the energy of it and the go and fucking do it. That really influenced my filmmaking more than anything. You know, like, why not? Why not me? Why can't I do it? 
you know, these people sh- shook it up, and, you know, and, and did it their way, and they changed mm. the world and film. Like uh, Mark Duplass said at South by five years ago or whatever, the cavalry is not coming to it yourself. Yeah, they're not coming until you can show them that you can do it yourself. And then they're like, okay, well, can you do it with people? And like, well, I don't know any people. <laughs> well, I guess you got to find people and then come back to me. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think your use of musicians is really clever. And I've decided that's one of the ways I'm going to be moving forward with my next feature is employing more local musicians in, in actor roles and incorporating music as a larger piece of the uh, narrative. Can you, can you hear my dog in the background? Nice. Spit <laughs> it out, baby. Spit it out. This is Mr. Speedy. Oh, hey, buddy. That's Edgar sleeping back there. What a cutie. Speedy's the fat one waddling around. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Like, I use musicians because that's who I knew. That's who my friends were. You know, Derek Freeman, like, he's in, like, pretty much every single one of my things because he, he was the best man at my wedding. That's awesome. He's, like, a good friend. You know, like, we produce music together, we play music together, and then why not do another venture? You know, I, I use what I had around me, you know, which were my friends, you know, because, like, when you're trying to start out, you can't get people to work with you until you can show them something that you can do. Right. You know, like I couldn't get anyone to direct for me because they didn't see the vision that I had, you know, so I ended up directing. I couldn't get anyone to shoot it because they didn't see the vision that I had. So I ended up shooting it. Same thing with writing. Same thing with casting and actors. You know, I didn't know any actors. I knew musicians and I know that they're fools and I know that, you know, (laughs) like we can have fun, you know, and we can, you know, make something. It's there's something innately musical about film you know like you can't really separate music from it absolutely even before there was dialogue there was music tempos yeah you know it's so true yeah the rhythm of you know rhythm of dialogue the good stuff has the biggest musicality to it you know it's just i feel like my films are so rhythmic because that's what i've done for so long because you know like when i cut too and you know the final thing it's just you know it's all about timing it's all about timing everything and film is such an interesting medium because it incorporates all the other media. Yeah, it does. We can put literally every other art form mm-hmm. into film. It's kind of amazing how it lives and breathes with musical rhythms, which can be then shaped. You can put rhythms on the page. You can put rhythms in the performances. You can put rhythms in post, in editing. And then you can add music to create literal rhythms to go on top of all these other rhythms that have been established it sounds like hip hop is a, in a way, a, a sneakily perfect background to move into the art form. Well, it's, you know, it is because hip hop is built on other music mm. originally, you know what I'm saying? And what do good films do? They build on the language of film, you know, and hip hop built on the language of music by just right. sampling it at first, just like literally taking it and mixing it and, you know, mixing and mashing and you know that's what film is like film is like you take all the things that you love about other films and other directors and stuff and you you put it into your own thing you build on the language and hopefully you can interject something you know useful that people will then build on itself you know rhythm film you know it's pacing you know it's all pacing 
you know, like a script, they'll tell you, oh, this doesn't seem like it's paced right. Because like you can literally read a whole script, 90 to 110 pages and feel if it's like in the right rhythm that that will translate. Music is a language that everyone understands. Interesting. Great way to segue into my next question for you, which is you told me you're, you're working on a feature right now. What can you tell us about this new project? Yeah, I've been working on this feature. I was hired to adapt a book um, by a prisoner who escaped jail. And, you know, this is, it's been a, about a year and a half process. So we're finally, you know, moving into pre-production. The book is great. I, you know, like, it's very interesting, like, adapting something, you know. Like, where is it set? It's set in Alton Prison in, in Missouri. That's where he escaped from. Unlike this, this dude, Quante Adams. They did, like, a National Geographic special on him, at, you know, as the escapist and stuff. A friend, a producer uh, that I know in, in L.A. gave me, you know, he was like, what do you think? You think you could do something? And I read the book. He's like, good, because we have two weeks. And so, you know, turned in the outline and, you know, everyone agreed. And then, you know, I started talking to the actual prisoner who's still in jail, Quante. We talk all the time. He's a, he's a great dude. He's, you know, his dad was one of the first Crips in Compton. So he kind of was born into that life. But I, I guarantee if he wasn't, he would be something way different. He's an amazing person. Um, and it's been a really interesting kind of journey, like, you know, telling his story when you adapt something it's a 400 page book you know you can't include all of that stuff (laughs) right so like you have to consolidate characters and and take leaps and you know take you know other characters merge them yeah you know consolidate the characters but also you know figure out who the other characters are that are in his book but you don't see him because the book is from his perspective so you don't really know exactly what the character is really the people really are so you kind of got to take you know leaps of faith and infer and use your craft as a screenwriter to make it and i was so happy when he like called me up almost crying about how much he enjoyed this fucking script you know because i did have to take those leaps and do it so if he's like this is you know he's like it's his story that's amazing he's in jail for trying to smuggle marijuana by the way. Oh, my God. At a time where there's marijuana billionaires, he got 30 years in 2005. It's been 15 years and still got 15 years left. And uh, the whole story is kind of about him trying to escape to be at the birth of his daughter, which he found out was going to happen as soon as he uh, landed in jail. So now she's 15. Amazing. It's tragic. So you're um, so this story was brought to you by those producers? Mm-hmm. And so you were hired to both write and direct it? Yes. That's fantastic. How did you meet the producers? You know, just random L.A. meetings through uh, one of my friends, Lizzie Mariata. She's like a graphic designer. She does titles for films and stuff. And um, she's like, you got to meet these people. So as you do in L.A. over some Mexican cool. margaritas. And, you know, he's like... <laughs> All right. Saw the funeral band, read a bunch of stuff that I wrote, and a couple weeks later, it's like, I think I have something for you. Would you be interested? Have you, uh, you've written feature-length spec scripts before? Yes, yeah. Cool. So you had a drawer full of of writing samples? 
I probably wouldn't have taken it on if I didn't know. <laughs> cool. I'm try- I'm asking these questions for listeners who might be at the stage where they've got short films they've produced and are looking to go into a feature length debut. The one thing that people never seem to do, but I always tell them is vital is you got to write feature length material. Even if those scripts don't get made, you, you need to be thinking about a canvas that size, like you said, all the rhythms that you need to sustain an audience interest for two hours. And it's not like writing a short. It's it's a different animal entirely, especially on the page. So I think it's really, uh, you can be exhibit Z in um, <laughs> for the importance of writing spec scripts. Yeah, I started writing webisodes and web series because they're short, you know. Mm-hmm. That was like a nice medium. And then we did British Quarter Hustler, which was like a fun little web series. Did a bunch of short films, then wrote a bunch of, you know, 30-minute pilots. Then started, you know, I feel like I had like enough crafts in me already after years of doing that, that I could start taking on a feature-length film because it's, you know, like, it's hard. You know, it's not an easy thing to do to sit there and write, you know, for a hundred pages it takes a lot of time it's like you know i'm very into the outlining and note carding Mm -hmm. and same here and because it's just it is a hard task to do but it's not impossible but you need craft to support it exactly everyone has an idea it's like okay cool an idea is just an idea an idea is worthless how how can you argue it on the page you know like what is what are you trying to say what characters are going to be on each side of that argument so you're not just out there saying it and you can just bury it in subtext and have these characters argue your point yeah that's a great way of looking at it craig mazin has a similar theory you know craig mazin yeah of course script notes yeah he's got that whole thesis antithesis uh model that he likes to use yeah and and but but and and but, and but, and but, you know, this happens and this happens, but this happens, then this happens and this happens, but this happens. That's all a film, you know, like those are your pinch points. Yeah, that's funny. That's a South Park's writing room uses the so but model, which is like somebody has a goal. So they do this, but this happens. So they do that. But this happens. And it's amazing how such a simple premise can suddenly unlock the the engine the dramatic engine of a story especially you know when you're adapting a true story true stories i mean real life doesn't necessarily follow dramatic continuity or thematic unity or anything so i've heard from my documentary friends and from people who've done similar adaptations that part of unlocking um, true stories or autobiographies is finding that theme and those sides of the argument and, and using that theme to be your litmus test for what remains in and what doesn't. Yeah, your spine. Your spine. The spine of your film, because you can go off in so many tangents. When there's a blank page, it's infinite possibilities. Mm-hmm. Being able to stay on that line, you know, on your spine is is the hardest thing about writing because, you know, like some stuff that you want to put in doesn't, and you got to cut it. You just got to, if it doesn't support your theme and in what you're trying to say and you know like you have to gut it and that comes down to like making great characters and designing their 
wounds and their wants and their needs to be conflicting so that they can overcome them and, and, and learn the theme that you're trying to push in the first thing. Yeah. We're theme pushers. Exactly. Yeah. What are you trying to say with it? Yeah. How do I feel after I write it? How do I feel after I read it? You know, like that's, if someone's like, I don't know how I should feel at the end of this. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> that's a warning sign. <laughs> so tell me about your experience with the New Orleans film community. Sounds like you, you've been going out to Los Angeles for a while. How long have you been doing that? And uh, tell me what motivated the decision to go by coastal, I guess. I don't know. I think I've been like going out there regularly for like maybe like three years now. Like last year I was out there like eight or nine times for various things. It's like, I love New Orleans, but you know, like, like the business is there and that's like kind of the truth about it. They're not hiring any above the line people from New Orleans, you know, like you got to go through LA. Yeah. And I like LA, man. I like, you know, people give it a lot of shit, but it's, you know, nice weather, <laughs> good food. I, I love LA. I lived there for almost 10 years, 98 to 06, essentially. And it's a very underrated city because all everyone knows about it are like the crappy Hollywood aspects. Yeah. But they don't realize what an incredible melting pot it is and how good the quality of life is and stuff. Yeah, you know, like you can go out, do a little hiking. You're you're right there in, like in the in the beauty of California, you know. It's like all people talk about is being in their cars. When they talk about LA is like the traffic. It's like Yeah. Sometimes it takes me 40 minutes yeah. to get from here uptown. <laughs> That's like 3 miles. New Orleans is by far the worst driving city I've ever lived in. And I've lived in New York, Boston, LA. I mean, the, the driving in New Orleans is nightmarish on all possible levels. Yeah. The funeral band is so New Orleans-y. It's using all of these well-known tropes of the city's culture. Do you see telling more New Orleans stories in your future as you become a, you know, a feature director and, and so on? And, and if so... Do you see yourself as part of any kind of New Orleans storytelling tradition, you know, as an artist? Well, that's not really for me to decide, I guess. You know, it's like the people elect you if you're a New Orleans tradition, you know, like I, I would never say that I, I was. But I love the city and I love telling the stories about the people that I know around here. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, like as a writer, you got to tell all types of stories from all types of people. I hope I can tell more New Orleans stories. There's a million New Orleans stories that you can tell. It's it's a great city for material. Yeah. You know, because there is like the beautiful vibrance of it, but there's also the heartbreaking aspect of it, which is like as somebody who does dramedy, it's kind of like the best dramedy city you can get because <laughs> it is yeah. beautiful, but it is heartbreaking. It will break your heart. It's the tragic comedy capital. It really is. It's, you know, and lately, yeah, I've been, I, I've written a couple of New Orleans features. The Funeral Band is actually the first 10 minutes of a pilot. Oh, for nice. a series. That's, I can totally see that. But I also write stuff about New Jersey, about, you know, I have another pilot called Brown Gringo about growing up as a Latino amongst anything but Latinos. Mm. I just wrote another feature about my sister, about moving from Newark, you know, which is kind of like the hood to the suburbs. She's my half-sister, so interacting with my dad as her stepdad as an immigrant right. um, coming into this country and kind of that relationship. The, the Fresh Prince of Jersey City. There's literally a Fresh Prince remark 
in in it because uh-huh. it's just you know nailed it. But yeah, I I do see myself telling more New Orleans stories because I've been here for twenty years and it's what I know and it's, you know fill of the people I love. But also, I want to tell stories about people of color who who don't really get much attention. You know, like as Latinos, like we don't get much attention. To be honest, you know, they they want us to be homeboys or or helpers. You know, but there's a whole other generation of us, especially first generation Latinos who are just, we're Americans, you know, and like we're caught between being not Latino enough for Latinos and not being white enough for America. And like, those are kind of the stories that I want to tell. Yeah, it's interesting. Brazil has a totally bizarre place in, I mean, it's like people just forget it exists. Mm -hmm. It doesn't speak Spanish, so it's not a Spanish. It's a total anomaly in Latin culture. But you're Latino. Yeah. That's like, I feel like Brazil is like why there's Latino. Like, because it's like, well, everyone else is Hispanic, but what about Brazil? Oh, we need another word for that. Um, Okay. (laughs) Yeah, great point. (laughs) It's like the asterisk. (laughs) And those guys. But what about Brazil? I'm like, oh, shit. Cool, man. Well, this is all very inspiring. Glad to see somebody really making moves out there. I'm trying to think of a of a strong closing question. The idea of Mardi Gras is like the biggest representation of New Orleans culture. It always has rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. But I also have a particular attitude about Mardi Gras, which is that I don't really love it. Um, I didn't even really know about it when I moved here, and I moved here for reasons totally unrelated to it. And so when it happened my first year in 07, I was just kind of taken aback by the tourism and how it kind of shuts the whole city down. And and then as I delved into the history of New Orleans movies, I started seeing, you can just see how it's just an easy cliche, such a trope that, you know, bad films that don't really care about New Orleans just go to as their kind of default thing as a cultural practice for me it's very redundant with life here my only real complaint about it is that it's it's redundant and i don't know why it means so much to locals you can kind of do any of that stuff any day of the year yeah parading and i mean putting a funny hat on and wearing a costume or whatever you can find any excuse to do all of that year round the city is so laissez-faire and creative and permissive and stuff that there's nothing stopping you. So when Easy Rider, you know, when they end up in, in Mardi Gras and stuff, the view of it is that this is the final collapse and this is where Captain America realizes that the dream has been sort of pissed away. Could they have used New Orleans better? <laughs> or is uh, was Mardi Gras the perfect choice for that? I think if you know what Mardi Gras is, really, I think it is kind of the perfect choice because it was like it represented these American ideals to them, I think. The freedom that they've been looking for the whole time. But once they got here, it wasn't really like that, which I feel like, you know, they saw the dark side of Mardi Gras, which there is the dark side of Mardi Gras, which is the tourist side as, you know, so like, I really do think they, it's one of the best representations of Mardi Gras, I think, because they were really honest with it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a good time if you pay for it. You know, they paid these ladies to go out. They they had bad trips in, in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Like, the dark side of it. You know, the dark side of the dream. You know, so I really do think it was one of the best movies to represent Mardi Gras in that way because it, it represented it unabashedly. Totally. It, the good and the bad of America represented with Mardi Gras because that's what happens when you get your freedoms. Oh, yeah. That's totally right. 
you know, with freedom comes responsibility. I have a friend who says, uh, you know, it's Mardi Gras when somebody's crying outside of a bar. That's Tuesday, man. <laughs> it's Tuesday in New Orleans, but yeah. <laughs> and then someone pukes on her. Right, exactly. And then trips over their own costume. and <laughs> Yeah, you know, like, yeah, yeah. So it's not a New Orleans movie, but it is a New Orleans movie because this was their goal. You know, their goal was the freedom that Mardi Gras represents for them, you know, Bacchus. Yeah. The Bacchanal, yeah. The Bacchanal. Um, cool. Well, you're going to post about your adventures in L.A., and do you have a, a start date on this feature yet? Yeah, the title is Bosco. Like the chocolate sauce? Yeah, yeah. That's what his mother called him. He's a really nice lady, too. Kind of talk to her through emails and stuff. It's been a really interesting way to, you know, get to know somebody by being the person telling their story. Um, we got a great cast. I can't really say anything about that yet till it's official. But hopefully we'll be shooting in September, barring what's going on with all this COVID stuff, because we got to keep it safe. Yep. It's a pretty good movie to do in something like that, because he is in solitary confinement most of the time. So, like, there are ways that we can, like, get around it. And, you know, and when he gets roughed up by, you know, the people, they're wearing riot gear. <laughs> it's, it's kind of perfect. But you, you know how it is. You just wait. You know, like you sit there, I'm doing pre-production stuff, you know, working with the production designer who I worked with on like another feature out there with this company. And, you know, got my shot list together and just, you know, kind of sitting here getting ready for it. That's what you got to do. You got to be prepared for the opportunity, right? Right. And uh, this might be a blessing in disguise and in that it's extending your pre-pro, right? Yeah, but you know how it is. Once we get the, the news, it's going to be like, okay, we're shooting in two weeks. <laughs> right. Okay, uh, so, you know. You must be waiting on SAG and insurance, I think, are the last two barriers to production. It's insurance. I've been talking to a lot of other people, you know, who are pretty much, like, in my position, you know, making the first or second indie film here and trying to do it. And insurance has been, like, the real barrier. So we got to see how that shakes out because it's, you know, insurance runs the world yeah no no joke this podcast sponsored by insurance <laughs> they can't cover you they'll say they will but like the generic products in repo man yeah just insurance insurance trademark you need it it's not going to cover anything cool i i love the funeral band and i i think that would make a fantastic series any uh, progress with that? Um, I just attached another producer who's, uh, who's a director, does like uh, Vampire Diaries, All-Americans, and, and stuff like that. A lot of stuff with Julie Pleck. Dumb question. Are those TV shows? Oh, those are TV shows. Yes, yes. So hopefully that pans out too. But, you know, it's just got a lot of projects. Brown Gringo, John and the Funeral Band is what the series is called. Um, another New Orleans feature about rappers. Oh, awesome. Got to stockpile the material because you never know when it's going to hit and when it's going to become zeitgeisty, I guess you can say. Yeah, exactly. That's, I have a friend whose motto is ABW, always be working. I'm in holding patterns. It's just when you do these big features and stuff, it's like it takes so long. I get so itchy to like shoot something, which, you know, it helps doing like the commercial work, you know, a lot. But like still, I'm just like, yeah. And I know how hard it is. It takes just as much time prepping a short film. No, it does. Like writing a short film <laughs> as something. So I'm like, am I going to like spend all this time? Because short films are almost harder because you got to get all the story into like 
10 minutes. This is exactly why I make so few short films, because I would rather put all that energy into a feature. It's almost as much work. And you can't sell it. Although I guess it depends on your process. If you have a good process, it's a lot of work. (laughs) All right. Final question, I promise. You've also directed and acted under an alias. Is that something you want? You can talk about, or is, are you trying to keep that on the DL? No, no. It's, that was my kind of stage name, Jermaine Quiz. And again, like I acted because I didn't know any actors. <laughs> you know, so I was like, okay, sure. Let me just uh, helm this. Let me just direct and act. And I've never done anything before like this, so let me just do it anyway and see how it comes out. And I do get offers to be in people's like short films and stuff, and I just. I don't know. Acting's hard, man. It is. I don't know how they do it. Acting is so hard. I've done improv and stuff, too, before. Improv classes and, and, you know. And you had to do that British accent the whole time. That's even hard, isn't it? For people at home, we're we're talking about British Quarter Hustlers web series that he did. Yeah. British Quarter Hustlers is basically about the warring street performers in the French Quarter against the lesser-known British Quarter, which is... It's really only a block, so it's like more like a British 16th. It's not really a quarter. A metric 16th. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I like that the French guys are dressed like mimes, so you have human statue versus mime culture. <laughs> like, it's just such a natural <laughs> comic premise, you know? Yeah, that's what, you know, I kind of got the idea by seeing, like, you know, two of the statues yelling at each other. Like, two dudes <laughs> painted in gold and silver spray painted and gold and silver like yelling at each other I'm like oh man they have real beef yeah i wonder what a standoff would be like you know it's <laughs> uneventful but it's very funny those guys you know? have big personalities i spend so much time in lower decatur you see them walking back from the jackson square you know sometimes they'll be in a mood sometimes they'll be hollering at people like they're always in a mood i got a character in a movie coming up who's got knuckle tattoos that say mm-hmm. loud mime <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that as a gift. You can work that if you want into a future British Quarter Hustlers episode. Oh, nice. I would love to make more of those. Those were just super fun. Just silly, you know, like the Asians of Lee Circle. (laughs) Yeah. From being in bands and stuff, I'm sick of pushing brands. It's so hard. It just takes so much time to build the brand. So I kind of, you know, just kind of went with a personal brand right now. I think that's the smart way. Because it's such a creative energy suck to spend all your time on social media, make a hashtag out of your own identity. It's People will tell you it's the future, but I, I think it's a distraction to artists. We're at the connection of commerce and art, and that's the way it is. You know, that's the way it always is going to be for us. You know, art is a commodity. If you don't, if how much you like it or not, it's what you do with that information that's yeah. that's true. You know, that's that's your journey. You know, so you, you're never going to get rid of it. But if you're lucky enough, you won't have to do that much. <laughs> well, it's like that old expression. They don't call it show show. It's show business. Exactly. Exactly. It's show business. Well, on that. They don't call it show show. It's show business. <laughs> Faux show. It's great seeing somebody out there making all the moves. And best of luck with uh, Bosco. It's exciting to see more features made by New Orleans artists. That's kind of what I'm all about. And uh, I hope people listening to this go and check out Easy Rider, which is available everywhere, all the streaming platforms. And is is it a Criterion title? Yeah, it's a Criterion title. Absolutely worth checking out for people who haven't seen it. It's one of those movies that just changed everything. Um, Filmmaking was not the same after it. It was not. And it, it birthed the American New Wave. Cool. Well, thank you, Nick. I appreciate your time, man. 
Thanks, Randy. It's been great talking to you. I'm um, looking forward to seeing what you're going to be working on next, too. And uh, just let's just keep it moving, bro. Yeah, exactly. And I'm available to you for whatever you need, uh, just in future projects or a sounding board, read a script. You know, I'll show up on set and hold a boom mic. I don't care. You know, I love making movies and I want to help. Nice, nice, nice. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I appreciate it, man. Like, thank you so much for uh, having me. Subscribe! Rate, review, tell your friends, etc.